as when you are in a joint venture relationship or any sort of partnerships, obviously you're in it so that you can split the proceeds at the end of every single month. And they were not able to do that. And I'm going, oh, what happened? Are you a real estate investor looking to sharpen your skills or a newbie looking to become one? You're in the right place. Welcome to Where Should I Invest? Real Estate Investing in Canada with your host, Sarah Larby. How to lose a million dollars overnight. Today's guest will share his story and how he lost a million dollars overnight. Tim Tsai, returning guest and real estate investor mentor. He does a ton of stuff. He has lots of different strategies and has been super successful in sharing lots of knowledge. He's invested in Canada, the US, UK, in lots of different strategies, such as lease options in both residential and commercial, some creative financing stuff flipping, wholesaling, some infield development, mobile home parks, and so forth and so on. And he's just uh, a great, great teacher, a great coach, a great mentor. And he's had two heart attacks before. I think he was 30 years old. So you'll, uh, you'll love his story. And before, though, we bring in Tim, let's hear from Dahlia on today's tip of the week. Hi, I'm Dahlia, founder of Streetwise Mortgages, and in today's episode, I would like to share with you some of the common misconceptions about financing. Today, we will discuss mortgages for self-employed clients. Some self-employed clients believe that they cannot get a mortgage until they have completed two years in business and have paid themselves through the business for two years to qualify for a mortgage. This is not entirely true. Let me explain. If you are a self-employed client, you actually have several options when it comes to mortgage financing. Option number one is to qualify with the banks. This option gives you the best financing terms with respect to rates, amortization, and down payment. For that, the banks need to see that you have been in business for at least two years and that you have paid yourself enough from the business over the two years to qualify for the mortgage. In addition, they want to see that you do not have any taxes owing to Revenue Canada. Paying yourself from the business can be in many forms, including T4 income, dividends, or a combination of the two. And that is if you're incorporated. If you are a sole proprietor, they would look at net business income. Over the two years, if your most recent income is greater than the previous year, they would average the two. And if your most recent year is less than the previous year, they will take the lower of the two. So that's the option with the banks. Option number two is also with the banks. However, there are programs on the street that will supplement your personal income that you're paying yourself from the business with some of the business income. So say, for example, that you are incorporated and that you need a $120,000 to qualify for the mortgage and that you've been paying yourself from the business consistently $100,000 in the form of dividends. Now, what they'll do is they're going to look into your business financials and they're going to um, take a percentage of the profit that the business has earned over the two years so they can add that to your personal income to help you qualify. Again, this prog program is not available with all banks, but it is out there with some of the banks. The third option is to qualify with an alternative lender or what's called a B lender. B lenders are more flexible when it comes to income for self-employed clients compared to the banks, but they charge you a higher interest rate and they also charge something called a lender fee. Their interest rates generally are one to one and a half percent higher than the bank rates, and their lender fee is around one percent of the loan amount. The beauty, however, about the B lenders is that they work with what's called stated income, meaning they do not need to see that you have filed your tax returns or that you're paying yourself uh, income from the business on your T1 generals. Instead, they review your business bank account statements, and they will gauge how much money you earn by the revenue deposits in that account, as well as the business expenses. 
there will always be a trade-off when it comes to mortgages for self-employed clients. With the banks, you will get better terms, but you'll have to pay yourself enough from the business to qualify, and therefore, your personal tax bill will be higher. While with the B lenders, your mortgage rate will be higher, but you can qualify without paying yourself as much from the business. The key thing is to make an informed decision, you need to sit down with your mortgage broker and plan the optimal amount of income needed to qualify for the mortgages you want to qualify for and to discuss your goals and to work out what that income looks like and then to engage your accountant in the conversation to make a final decision around how much you need to pay yourself from the business to qualify. If you are currently self-employed with a B lender and you are looking for cheaper options when it comes to mortgage financing, or if you're looking to grow your portfolio and you're looking to understand your options as a self-employed client or plan your income to qualify for the best terms, our team at Streetwise Mortgages would be happy to assist you. Contact us at info at streetwisemortgages.com. Cheers to your success. Awesome, Dahlia. Thank you so much. Tons of great insight, guys. Reach out to Streetwise Mortgages for more information. On that note, our team, my team is growing and I'm looking to expand. So if you are looking for an admin assistant type of role, send me an email, sarah at sarahlarby.com. Part-time hours likely going to full-time as we have tons of different projects on the go and different investments. So if you're interested in joining the team, send me your resume, sarah at sarahlarby.com. And uh, we'll set up a call and a chat. So on that note, let's bring in Tim. Enjoy today's podcast. Tim Tsai, welcome back for your second time. And uh, I'm excited to have you back. Last time we had so much information, so much great content. I'm like, you've got to come back. How are you doing? Doing really well. Doing really well. How are you? Good, good. So yeah. for those that haven't met you, haven't listened to you, I would suggest strongly that I go back and, and search for Tim's prior podcast, because we're not going to get into all of the nitty and gritty stuff that we did back in the day. We really are going to focus today on how you lost a million dollars overnight, but we're also going to focus on what you can do at home if you're investing to mitigate your risk and to be able to, I think we're going to be in a turbulent couple of years. Again, I could be totally wrong, but I think we're going to be in for a little bit of surprise, which could be a great opportunity for the savvy investors to do really well, but it could also be a tricky opportunity for others. And so we're going to talk about that today, but Tim, let's just do like a quick, quick 30,000 foot overview, your portfolio, how long you've been investing in real estate and what you're up to these days. Yeah. Okay. So high level overview, I've been investing in real estate. I always sort of split it down to well, before I got educated and after I got educated. And so the, that line is the year 2010. So really technically I bought my first piece of real estate back in 2004. However, officially, professionally, I would say since 2010. So about 12 years now at this point. And the portfolio right now is in coast to coast in Canada and in the US as well as across the pond into the UK. So that's, that's kind of where everything is at the moment. And I think what I'm about to share today has a lot to do with why it's spread that wide too. <laughs> Amazing. So obviously you've got a large portfolio. You're not only in Canada, you're in the UK, you're in the US. You've got lots of different strategies that you've done in the past, whether it was rent to own and buy and hold and the birth strategy and all that good stuff. Is that right? Absolutely. Yes. Awesome. All right. So we are curious. I think we mentioned it last time. I'm like, I've got to have you back. We've got to talk about how you lost a million dollars pretty much overnight. What happened? Okay. Well, that's always a good story to tell. And to be really, really frank though, we're in what, 2022? This is the second time I've actually publicly shared about this. And I'm not usually comfortable sharing stuff like that just because you never know how people are going to take it. And sometimes things get taken out of context. So I really appreciate the also, opportunity. The authenticity and vulnerability. I feel like that's what connects people to other people. And so thank yes, you for coming. I, sure. I totally agree. And I think that's probably one of the reasons why I really pumped myself up to start, to start sharing this story. Because, I mean, this was... I think this was the year 2016. 
and this was September 2016 to be more specifically. So I'm going to do one of those things where I'm going to give you exactly what happened, which is basically the, the title tagline at the moment, how I lost a million dollars overnight and managed to recover it from it in less time than it took me to build the portfolio. So what happened was I was actually vacationing almost a, a, a month long vacation in Italy. And that ended with a call that nobody ever wants to get, which was, well, got a call from one of the partners that we had in the Calgary market. And they basically said, you know what, unfortunately, we're not going to be able to pay to make the payment this month. So again, as when you are in a joint venture relationship or any sort of partnerships, obviously you're in it so that you can split the proceeds at the end of every single month. And they were not able to do that. And I'm going, oh, what happened? And they just went, well, actually the bigger piece of news is we've just, we just decided to file for bankruptcy. We're going into receivership with the entire portfolio. And I'm going, what? Like how, when, like how? Like I did not, I did not really understand exactly how it happened. And obviously it's one of those things where when I hit you, you start to start to look back and journey back. Now this particular partnership, it's really funny because it wasn't, it wasn't so much that it was a new one. It by, by September, 2016, we have been working with these guys for almost four years, almost four years at this time. So we started this relationship in, in 2012 and we were connected by a mutual investor in the industry as well, because we, we really took the whole, your network is your network thing too hard. And we were actively networking as brand new investors, as starting as somebody that was really just working really hard to build a network, to build a portfolio. And so we got to meet a lot of people and through our connections, we met these guys. And, um, so I guess without giving too much away, not that there is sort of anything that we signed to protect them. However, I still want to respect everybody because at the end of the day, I think what I really want to share at the end of all of this is the lessons that I took away and how I applied it to be better and grow better. However, these, these guys, they came together initially as their cousins, their brothers. And so they started the property investing business after joining a couple of clubs and uh, they just kind of learn a few things here and there. However, they were in the Calgary market and when they got started, things were just going up, 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 up for them. And so Looking back though, I'm gonna to start to mix a little bit of facts and sort of my analysis in terms of what happened is that they were acquiring like crazy. They were growing so, 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 so fast, even though yes, they were burring everything, which is really what we're supposed to do, especially when it comes to property first strategies. So they were burring everything, anything to flip, anything to hold, anything from single family, all the way to 24 unit apartment buildings. And what was happening was that because they were growing so fast, they were tapped out and over leveraged very quickly. And so throughout that entire period, they were starting, they were meeting different investors and starting to extend promissory notes because they needed to borrow cash quick so that they can start to really do their turnovers on the renovation process a bit quicker. That way it drives the cost, the, the cost of borrowing down. They can go in and do that big refi as quickly as possible. So we met them in 2012. And if anybody was investing or has any inkling in terms of how the Alberta economy was going in 2012, it was the heydays. It was amazing. You can buy something today and sell it tomorrow for a profit, even if you go through a listing agent and a selling and a buying agent. So that's how crazy it was in that market. So everything on paper checked out, everything looked great. The numbers, they all made sense, like knowing what we know now too. So in 2012, when we first started getting into the opportunities with them, we were basically just doing private lending. And so we always talked about when the first few deals, you kind of tend to go a little small just because you want to start to build that working relationship. You want to see how well you work together. And if you sort of align on your process and communications and really your personal styles in a way. And in the beginning, everything was great. So we were doing $30,000 loans, $50,000 loans, anywhere between three to six months. And so we hammered, we hammered out about a couple dozens of them within a year and a half kind of time frame. And I just went, you know what, this actually is working really, really well. And I'm looking at their business model. I started having conversations with them 
And because this was the time where we really were starting to branch out from the Edmonton market, which is where I call, call home still. And uh, at this point, we were already starting to invest in the US too. And so, as I said, 18 months later, that brings us into 2014. So we've already gone into other markets like BC, like Ontario, like the US. And so I'm looking at our home province going, well, why are we restricting ourselves really just in the Edmonton market in terms of buy and holds? So why don't we just strike a partnership agreement and just go, well, maybe we can expand to the Calgary market since we've had such a great and amazing working relationship. And so long story short, we converted a lot of private lending, a lot of our loans into equity stakes. And it kind of grew from there. And anytime there was a bit of a cash call, we would have the first right of refusal. And so we kept topping it off, topping it off, topping it off. Meanwhile, it's not like nothing ever came back. It's just that every time we did a refi, the money came back. And as we now all know what happened in the Alberta market in 2014, so it became a bit of a perfect storm because when the oil industry started to decline, the gas industry started to decline in 2014 towards the end there, basically people started getting laid off. So all the workers that were renting the places, they were getting laid off. Obviously they were making a fair attempt to look for new jobs and new, new paychecks, so to speak. But most of them did not succeed at doing so because it was just such a ridiculous time even now looking back because, I mean, I didn't live in Alberta my entire life. I moved to Edmonton in 2009. So all I kept hearing was the heydays and the Great Depression of Alberta in the 80s. I'm like, I was born in the 80s, okay? So no idea what that actually meant. However, in 2014, when that was happening, People were losing jobs. They could not pay rent or they could not pay rent on time. Vacancy started to go up. It wasn't just our properties. It was across the board. Everybody was running into that. However, obviously, the first thing that we saw was the fact that the buildings that were still mid-reno, obviously, we were losing tenants a lot faster. And so that's really one of the first lessons that we learned is, number one, you want to make sure that you really space out your burr processes on all of your properties because I still do see a lot of people growing really, really fast. And we all know that one of the main reasons why people have to are forced to declare bankruptcy, go into receivership is because there's just not enough cash. So it's cash flow management, actually. It wasn't the fact that there was no equity, there was no asset. So that was really the first lesson is really, really look at your resources at all times and really pace your bird process and your acquisition process and make sure that you're not over leveraging. And that goes into really kind of what we're up against at the moment in 2012, post COVID, so to speak, and with inflations, with changing laws and increasing interest rates, because that, even though it wasn't really happening in 2014, just one major factor alone in the major economic driver that really changed a lot of things around. And the reason why we were losing a lot of tenants in those mid-rental properties, well, as during those times, tenants are getting smarter and some of them may become a little, I'll say snootier too, because they're going, if I'm paying $1,500 here for a shack like this, now I can pay the same amount of money and live in a castle mm -hmm. because now, all of a sudden, all landlords are pulling out all the stops, first month's free rent, or we're going to give you a bonus, or we're going to give you this, this, and that for free. And you get a much nicer place, much newer place, brand new appliances. We're also going to do X, Y, Z for you, that kind of idea. So we're losing a lot of tenants very quickly. And at the same time, because a major oil crash in the province also caused even with the five big banks, three of them flat out at the end of 2014. So this was December, 2014. They basically flat out said for the next three months, we're not going to back any deals in Alberta, period. Don't care how it's performing. Don't care how much equity it is. Literally, we were talking to I don't know, I cannot even count how many banks directly, how many mortgage brokers across the country to see if they can find any lenders that would back some of the refis at this point. And now we're going to take a quick break to hear from one of our sponsors. 
Hey, just want to take a quick moment and introduce you to one of my go-to realtors, Jamil Rahimtula, who brings with him 15 plus years of experience as a real estate investor, as well as has a background in renovations and property management. He's found my last handful of deals for myself and also for my students and uh, is great at negotiations as well. But it is important that when you are picking a realtor that they are investors themselves, understand the investment game and have worked with many investors because they're going to be able to bring a team. They're going to be able to bring a team of solid trades and everything else that you need so that you can get into investing and continue your investing game a lot smoother. So in order to reach out to Jamil, you can call or text him. His number is 416-275-7819. Again, it's 416-275-7819 or his website, jamilrahimtula.com. Now back to the show. And now back to the show. Okay. So, so you know what, this is, this is really good. There's so much information to dissect. So like, first of all, thank you for sharing and thank you for being vulnerable. Uh, And, and ultimately it's how you pick yourself back up and how you continue. So when, when this was happening in, in, in Alberta, Alberta felt it, I think Eastern Canada and the Maritimes, they felt it too, because they're very much linked to the oil and gas industry. And we didn't really feel it in Ontario. So first and foremost, I will say all markets are different, but at some point all markets have a real estate cycle. Ontario has a very long cycle. We've been going up forever. At some point, it'll go down. BC, same thing. So so I I do want to emphasize that because I think it's quite interesting how it's not a Canadian real estate market. It's not even an Ontario or a a BC or an Alberta real estate market. It's so individual, but it's quite interesting because it was like that perfect storm of your properties in Alberta and the oil and gas industry taking a huge dive. And then as soon as the banks and the lenders start pulling back, where do you get that money? Right. And so that could happen anywhere. I mean, obviously Ontario and and other provinces may not be as tied to the oil and gas industry. And Alberta is known for having those quicker ups and downs and those quicker market cycles, but it's that perfect storm. And so you've got to really, really, and I think you can, you can, you can talk through this with me, but you need to understand your market. You need to understand the market fundamentals, because if you are going into a market that is tied to one main industry, if you are going into a market that doesn't have the same type of rent controls that another market might have, that usually indicates like, for example, when I look at Alberta and I look at what you mentioned with the the tenants and the renters, could that happen in Ontario? Sure. Did it happen? I think at the start of the pandemic, a lot of people were, were leaving the condos to get something else but we still have a different rental type of like the rules and the regulations that I don't see necessarily that happening to the same extent that maybe something like the the tenants and the rents in Alberta might have happened, but it could be a sub market. Yes. So, okay. So let's take a step back for a second. So the money, so you were a private lender in these deals. They were the active partner. Now you're, you you mentioned you, you took an equity piece, but your, your loss came from what exactly? The money lending, the promissory notes, or they had to sell the properties at a loss? Like what exactly happened? So basically what happened is after going through the receivership process, because at this point we had over a million dollars in cash into the equity portion of our partnership. And a big part of that, we actually have to debt service as well, because again, I started in my late twenties and I didn't have a lot of money. And so to this day, I always say that over 95% of my entire portfolio is still built based on OPM. And so a big chunk of that million dollars was actually OPM that we still also had to debt service on the other side. And so to really fast forward this, it took three and a half years afterwards to completely clean it up from a legal perspective and from making that money back. But the funny thing really is that through this partnership, I always say that it took us six years to lost that money, but then it took us less than three years to make it all back and more than double what we lost. Because after that, we just realized, oh my God, like, what do we do now? And I think it's really when you get into situations like that, we had to get super creative. Now I will share this with everybody though. I mean, I don't want the story to really scare you because going through that, it obviously wasn't fun. We had to really tuck our tails between our legs and go to our OPM and say, listen, this is what happened. And truth be told, I mean, imagine that nobody took that conversation really well initially. However, that was also really what gave us 
it was one of the biggest lessons that we've had so far as as investors to this day is the fact that people that we thought had our backs, so to speak, people that were with us from day one, and we've been making them money, better money, year over year over year, they basically freaked out. That's probably the best word I can use right now. And then they demanded everything back right off the bat. Whereas we actually had some newer investors that joined us in 2014, 2015, when this all happened, they actually told us, you know what? We trust you. We believe in you. I see that you have a plan. You're obviously not new at this. And so it's just really funny going through that. And I'm going to be completely honest, was crying almost every single day because it doesn't feel great. (laughs) And looking back, we could have liquidated a lot of our other properties in other provinces and other markets, kind of like what you said. And so this is why I, real estate cycle is exactly what we discuss a lot within, within our community, with our investors as well, is the fact that these days we basically, before we bring any investor on board, the induction process is really making sure that we show them how the real estate cycle goes in every single market based on their financial goals. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah. Now, <laughs> I mean, with that said, though, I think it's really what gave us really the strength and the the courage to continue to to, to be in this industry. Because during that entire time, there was a lot of soul searching that I had that that I had to do. It was I've read a lot of books about how all these millionaires and billionaires at one point in their careers they lost big. They but then because of what they know, they were able to make it back twice as much, twice as fast. Yeah. And that's exactly what happened. And so I think some of the bigger lessons, not just not over leveraging, and it was really, first of all, to wrap up that thought process is the Mm -hmm. fact that this is why today we always say, you know what, we're here to provide quality housing. Because from that point, we made sure that we grew at a sustainable pace. We always over budgeted for everything. And this is why these days when I share numbers, when I'm teaching, it's always, you know what, maybe it's the Asian genes in me at this point also. (laughs) I always underestimate my revenue and overestimate my expenses to make sure that the NOI is strong enough so that there there is enough room, your net operating income is strong enough so that there is enough room when you have to do incur extra cost borrowing, you still have a little piece left at the end of the day. And so during COVID, for example, a lot of the people initially, especially across the country, they're also losing tenants left, right, and center for the same reason. People are now wanting bigger spaces, nicer spaces. But because of the lessons that we learned, we learned to acquire different types of property, meaning let's say even if we are going to buy a one-bedroom units. But then when I say one bedroom units, I mean, in the multiplex, when we have one bedroom, two bedroom, three bedroom mixes in there, we made sure that the one bedroom units are at least of a certain size. And we we renovate everything up to a certain standard. So throughout entire COVID, I'm happy to say that looking back, I'm glad we went through what we went through in 2016 because during COVID when everybody was freaking out, not collecting rent on time, not collecting rent, losing tenants, we had zero. We lost zero tenants across the country in our entire portfolio here. Mm -hmm. And I think that really came at a much higher tuition prior to that. (laughs) However, (laughs) I'm sure. I mean, you know what it is, it is, important, I think, to learn from the mistakes and to learn and get up and and not let the failures define you forever. I mean, you could have done nothing. You could have said, that's it. I'm done. I'm out of real estate, sold the rest of your stuff, paid back the lenders, but you persevered through it. And, and, and obviously you came out ahead and you came out with more knowledge, more experience to be able to, I think we're going to come into a different type of market cycle very shortly in the next couple of years as well, but to be able to maneuver through all of that. How did you end up paying back the million? Like, the, was it just the appreciation over time of some other properties that you were able to refinance and pay out? Like, how did that all get pieced together at the very end? <laughs> Great question. So as I said earlier, we actually had already started to diversify into different markets as well. And I think this is why these days my 
main philosophy is go where the money is. And when I say go where the money is, it doesn't mean you find the market where you think it's going to make you money. I think a lot of people that have heard me share this in different on different platforms and also our own is the fact that my investment philosophy always starts with your financial goals. Because again, we all got into this for a reason. We want a certain lifestyle. We want to be able to do something with our lives for our families, build a legacy, whatever it may be, or financial securities in the long term. All that boils down to a very simple number. And now I let that number determine what kind of strategies I'm going to deploy. And then let the strategies determine which markets that I actually want to go into. So market is actually not the first thing that we look at still and should never after, in my opinion, after everything that we've been through for ourselves. Because so many people, in my opinion, they kind of really do it backwards. They look at properties first and they get emotionally involved and they convince them th themselves that the market is always going to go up, especially for certain markets. People are more prone to that. And so, I mean, I'm just going to call a few a few things out, which is, like you mentioned, the Ontario market, the BC market, especially the lower mainland, for example. People are just kind of sitting pretty on equity, but then they have no idea what's to come. And so I always say that because I call it the SMP process, so strategy, market, properties. Properties is actually the last thing we look at because through this entire process, I very much learned that we're here to learn how to invest, leveraging real estate investing, leveraging real estate as our main tool and vehicle because you could invest in, in other things. There are four major different asset classes. Why do you choose real estate? So coming out of all, coming out of, all of that, that's really something that I hold very close to how I operate. And I still have to <laughs> remind myself to do that because I'm one of those people where if I physically walk into a distressed property with my contractors, I start to go haywire as in, I'm like, let's do this here. Let's do this here. Let's tear down that wall. Let's add granite here. Let's do that. I still, I still get emotionally carried away. I'll, I'll be completely honest. And this is why I love the formula that I've set out for myself that I've been sharing for years now. Because again, if you want to achieve a certain amount in passive income or even active income through real estate investing, there are so many different strategies that people can actually use to do that. Yeah. And so that way you're not trapped in that, you know, sure. <laughs> in just buying properties. Now strategy, we started to strategy yes. market properties, guys, if you're listening to this, write this down because I think it's great. And also let's, let's talk about, and I'll let you finish that thought, but let's talk about diversification. Cause I think that also saved you by having not only real estate in other provinces, but out of country. And I think it's going to be very important yes. in the next few years to come as well. Yes, absolutely. So because of that, I mean, first thing first, I mean, how do you, how do you recover from losing a million dollars. Obviously, you gotta find that million dollars somewhere. And this is why I said we had to actually tuck our tails between our legs and start to engage in with every single OPM that was involved. So every single capital investor that we had and that we were working with. I mean, not every investor in working with us was impacted, in all fairness. And so the ones that were, we went to them with solid business plans before we actually engaged them. As in, when this was happening, we already started to go, all right, what are our losses? Wow, it's a big number. What can we do now to really make sure that we not only keep our promises, pay their principal back over time and still give them the promised returns? And so what we started doing is we started to, to build our plans. And the moment we started to engage in conversations with them. Like I said, some of them wanted to demand their money back right away. And so we had, we did have to liquidate some of our properties in other parts of Alberta. We had to liquidate our properties out in the East coast and we had to liquidate properties in our BC portfolio as well, just so that we have that initial chunk of equity to pay them back. The other investors that stayed on with us, they were okay with the business plans because every single business plan that we did, we showed them exactly how we're going to find a property, which markets that we're going to go into and the numbers and the performance first and foremost, so that they understand that they would, their loan with us or their investment with us would still continue to be debt serviced and continue to grow. And there will be further equity against the hard asset backing it up.
And so that's exactly how we recovered. And there were people that stayed on with us. They're still with us to this day. And these are the people I'm just going to say, if you're listening to this, but you're getting paid better now because we appreciate so much for not burning our house down or threaten us because we got threatened a lot. And I get it. I totally get it. It's money. It is money and people get emotional about it. However, this is, I think, one of the main reasons why I believe I shared it in the last podcast that we did together. The reason why I wanted to get educated was because I joined a syndication that wrapped up the deal and took everybody money, everybody's money and ran. Hmm. That's, that was my start. And so when all of this was happening, I made the decision that I'm not going to do that to anybody. I think that's also what gave me the courage. I guess I can use that word now. <laughs> Back then it was just, it felt like the right thing to do. Right. Like I wasn't going to do what somebody did to me no. and they wronged me and I don't want to wrong anybody. And now we're going to take a quick break to hear from one of our sponsors. Hey, are you looking for a reliable contractor for your next Burr multifamily conversion or flip project? Somebody who understands how to work with investors and also real estate investing itself. I've personally partnered with Lee Pollock from Wise Construction. We're actively doing many projects together in Hamilton and Welland. So things like smaller three and four unit conversions and also some larger buildings where we're converting some large empty commercial spaces into residential units. And it's always been important to meet a partner and hire a contractor who does not only high quality work, but is on time and on budget. And it's also a huge bonus that they have their own in-house trades, employees and a warehouse full of building materials so that they can avoid the many labor and material shortages that we hear about often these days. A good project done on time, on budget and with high quality work will be key to the success of your Burr multifamily conversion or flip projects. So to connect with Lee from Wise Construction, text or phone him at 416-525-5951. Again, that is 416-525-5951. And now back to the show. And now back to the show. Yeah, agreed. And you know what? Reputation, this is such a small industry, right? We're all a couple degrees of separation. It is. The yes. Kevin Bacon thing, but even less, <laughs> like two degrees of separation. Yes. And, and we, t- we all talk, right? And we all, we, know, we all know who loses money. And I won't, I won't say it publicly here, but yes. there's been some stuff on the news very, very recently. Yes. Again, it's, yes. You know, there's always two sides of every story. It is what it is. However, how, how you handle that piece is, is super important you know, and, and then how you have that integrity and the authenticity to be able to like talk to them, come up with a business plan, give them an out. I think that's super important because some of them, like you said, they wanted their money back. And luckily you, yeah. you had that ability to do that. Again, not everybody might, yeah. if you were all in Alberta, for example, and yeah. this was like your first, the only deals you've done, like mm-hmm. you've been in a very different situation. Yeah. Uh, but, but again, I think it's all about integrity. It's about making sure that you know, you're protecting almost the money more so than you would with your own money, right? Because it's, yes. it's the reputation that's at, at risk, which is everything in this industry. You lose it, you're, you're done. And I so, mean, we all know, right? Good news yeah. travels fast, good news travel fast, bad news travel even faster. Even faster. Yeah. So let's, let's just, for example, like, so you, just so everybody understands, you were borrowing money at, a, I'm going to guess, a lower rate, and then you were charging this company a higher rate, and that's how you made your money is the, the spread in between, correct? On a high level, yes. Minus the equity piece at some point. Absolutely, yes. So you were still responsible for paying monthly payments on the money that you were borrowing. They were responsible for either getting you a piece of equity or paying you the, the spread. Correct. Yes. No different than if we were to go into a Burr IP deal, Burr income property kind of idea. It's at the end of the day, you are walking away with a monthly cash flow and some equity stake. Yes. Okay. So let, let's talk about what's happening right now, because when I look and I see people losing a lot of money, people declaring bankruptcy, oftentimes, not all the time, again, we're going to be in a different market cycle. I think it's going to be important to cash flow. This is where the cash flow piece can help you withstand the turbulent times. I think that are going to be ahead versus just banking on appreciation and having to pay a tenant to live there because you're not covering your costs. But mm-hmm. I think ultimately to hard money and private money, and you talked about being over leveraged, 
as, as big risk factors, potentially growing too fast with hard money, with private money. If you wouldn't mind sharing some thoughts around that. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. I think, you know what, I'm just going to share some of the biggest lessons that we've learned through that process as well. And the first one, obviously, is if you're going to be doing, doing private lending, make sure that you have the right financial instruments going into it, meaning the right paperwork. So I know a lot of people these days like to do promissory notes, which I personally love as well. But then also remember that depending on the province and the subject property or your collateral, basically your security, because I always like to say when it comes to private lending, the major four questions that anybody needs answers to are how much in, how much out, how long, and how is my money secured? So obviously, because we're leveraging real estate, your money typically should be and is secured against a piece of hard asset that is real estate. So it comes down to the financial instrument that you're going to be using. So promissory notes, still love it. At the same time, though, with the promissory notes, we always, always add another lien against it. And that piece of lien could vary in names from province to province, from city to city sometimes even. And also what type of entities that you would actually need to set up to do so. If you're lending it on a personal level, that's not usually a concern. However, understand that your listenership, your audience, a lot of us, a lot of you guys are all professional investors. So you've got your, your corporate structure set up. So you want to make sure that you do that. And I know I've seen this happen over and over again. People, they want to save $200, $500 to get reincorporated to do the lending. So they skip that step. Don't skip that step, please, because that's going to be how you are able to legally through that process to reclaim your money if and when you need to. Okay. And so when I say that you want another piece of instrument on top of your promissory note, typically it's in the form of a lien charging against title or charging against land itself. So depending on, once again, the province and the verbiage that they will use, the most important piece on that, in my opinion, these days is you, you should never, ever agree to a postponement of any sort when you're registering that lien. Okay. What, so, what does that mean exactly, a postponement? <laughs> a postponement because most of us, mo most of us, and I know if you have mortgage brokers listening right now, they might be pulling their hair out a little bit because postponement basically means, for example, let's just say that these days we'll get our first position lenders, which is usually a major lender, a lender, it's for cheaper money. And then we will borrow a private as a second to come in to do our renos and then going into the refi process. So that postponement, typically speaking, allows the mortgage brokers, the banks to go, okay, if and when we need to buy out the first two positions in place right now, they are, the first position is never going to do a, a postponement, especially when they're major lenders. However, it usually only affects the private lenders. So basically at this point, let's just say that if you've lent $50,000 against the project plus your fees plus your interest if it's a lump sum payment for example let's say after all is said and done you're owed $60,000 at this point if the the new refi that comes in says that oh you know what unfortunately because the appraised value did not come in as high or the loan to value did not come in as expected let's just say that out of the sixty thousand dollars they're only able to pay you the 50 and the borrower right now does not have the extra 10 to pay you out automatically when you have a postponement you're allowing them to go into second position already before you you've now automatically gone into third which increases your risk significantly, especially in this particular case when they're over leveraged. Obviously, I know some of you are gonna say, well, hang on a second, which lender would actually go into second position when you're doing a refi? Most of them will wanna go first. I'm just giving you an example in terms of how the postponement would work because yes, absolutely, you're right. Most lenders at this point, and I hope for your sake, whoever is listening, that this particular lender is also buying out both positions. All I'm saying is that you basically will get squeezed out from a position perspective. And so this is why also from a private lending standpoint, I always say it's not just the position, it's the loan to value. For me, I actually look at loan to value to do my risk assessment and then positioning as my second. Hmm. Some, some really good insight. And I know we talked about when people are lending money, but what about if you're borrowing money? Anything that you would suggest that they be 
aware of or cautious about, especially going into the next couple of years, borrowing prom notes or yes. borrowing past that 20% loan to value? Yes. So my personal take right now and our rule really also is that we will never ever leverage more than 90% on loan to value on our entire portfolio. Now, I know we're in a different position now these days because that's what people always say. Well, you've been doing this for much longer. I'm not in that position. However, this is why I keep on coming out with these rules or tests for myself as guidelines because I know sometimes we still get tempted and you have to set some hard rules for yourself if you want to be in this industry in the long haul. And so 90% is really where we borrow up to. Now, the other thing also is you don't always need to borrow money and park it against the subject property that you're doing a burr process on that you're holding. If you have other properties that you've already got equity in, that is another way for you to leverage as well. So that's what I would do and up to 90%. Portfolio wide, right? So if they have more properties, then you can kind of maneuver through it because you might have a house. Somebody listening to this might have a house and, and we buy, we love these because we buy them all the time that has to go private money because no bank will finance it because it's down in the suds and it's exposed brick and there's no kitchens, no bathrooms, like no lender is lending on that. That's private. So there is going to still be a need to finance private. I think it's just a matter of what the cost is how much extra you're borrowing past that 90%, 80%, are you doing 100% loan to value with prom notes? You probably want a little bit of skin in the game. And if you have absolutely no money and you're gonna have to borrow everything, maybe bring in a JV that has cash. Exactly, exactly. So again, I mean, this is goes, goes by, back down to a lot of the, the concepts and the mindset. And I'm, I'm, I'm sure that you share a lot of the same values too, is I know, I know, I've seen, I'm sure you've seen a lot of people operating like this as well. They'd rather go private lending because they want to, it sounds great that you don't have to get into a joint venture partnership. And it sounds great that you don't lose 50%, so to speak, because a lot of the JVs are done 50-50. But then at the same time, the concept is always, I'd rather have 50% of something than 100% of nothing. If you're an investor, if you're starting out, especially, we all have We've all had to go through that process where you are working a little harder. Absolutely. This is not free work and you're giving away a little bit more, but then that's also how you learn. This is also how you build because over time, I mean, we started out with a lot of JVs. This is how we were able to start buying out our JVs over time, or we allow them to buy us out and we take that chunk of cash and we go into private lending or we're going to do deals ourselves as well. Mm -hmm. So it's just a process. You've got to honor that process and don't be greedy. Don't be greedy. That's the thing. The first few deals, put your head down. And really the next few years, I'm actually super excited about it again, because I believe that people like you and me, we are, we took the time to really educate ourselves, really took the time to understand the full processes and really learned over time. And it's tough times that will prove that who's actually in it for the long game. And what that really means is yes, there's probably a little bit more work involved. For example, whenever you're providing a deal opportunity now, you're presenting a deal opportunity, it is really all about giving them the spectrum, showing all your potential investors the spectrum. What's the best case scenario? Nobody really wants to hear that or see that. It's always about what is the worst case scenario and do you align on the potential solutions that you will potentially go into together and everything else in between. And what that means, to my opinion, is let's just take a regular burr as an example on a single family home. And let's say the exit strategy really is you're going to hold on to it because burr is that process. That's how you are able to add value and pull out a little bit of equity. So you leave as little money in as possible. And so when you're actually initially presenting that deal, you want to make sure that whatever ARV or whatever comps that you're getting now, do a quick discount right off the bat. Now we talked about real estate cycle. Is Ontario in a real estate bubble? I absolutely believe so. However, I don't say it from a buzzword perspective. I say it from a looking back 10, 20, 30 years perspective. Because if we draw sort of the real estate cycle, it goes up and up and down, up and down, up and down. However, you take the median number of every dot, it basically still looks like this. And then and for those of you that are watching, it's just like basically like a... a diagonal line that goes up yes basically <laughs> so in case that wasn't clear 
Well, I mean, most people are going to listen to this. So sorry. I just want to make yes. sure that yeah. line, the line that you're drawing that I can see <laughs> is visualized. <laughs> yes. And so, and so from that perspective, what are bubbles? The bubbles are the parts where it does not go along that line. So you, one can also argue that at any given point, any market is in some sort of a bubble, a good one or a bad one. And so what I always encourage people to do now is whatever it is, ARV that you're getting, put a discount on that. Stress test your own deals. Whatever contractors quote on the renovation work that you're doing on that. We already do 10%, most of us right off the bat. You want to add a little bit more onto that. Whatever percentage, I cannot tell you that just yet because I don't know the scope of the work. However, the whole idea is always give yourself extra buffers now moving forward for the next at least year and a half. My personal take is that this is not going to really, really hit until January 2024. Why? Because a lot of businesses, including investors, when the governments were doing the handouts, people apply for them. And so the entire economic impact on paying back those loans are not gonna be felt truly until the government starts to recall that at the end of December, 2023 at this point. Hmm. And so I do think that I, I am predicting that in the next 18 months, we're going to see still growth at a declining rate. However, after January, 2024, I do believe that's when things are gonna get very interesting. This is where the savvy investors, the value investors can actually do really well. And unfortunately, many people are going to come out of the game. So yes. you talked about buffering. So you, we know rates are going to go up. We know they're going to go up likely again, twice more in, in 2022, yes. at least another probably a couple yes. times in 2023. Again, no one really knows for sure. These are just kind of our best predictions. So when you're doing a burr or you're doing something like you probably want to, like you said, stress test at a higher rate. You yeah. mentioned the contractor quotes, not only add costs, but add time, right? We all know that like shortages of labor, shortages of pro product and supplies, like it's a real thing. I don't know if it's going to actually be getting any better anytime soon. Probably not. So add a little bit to the timeline as well. Rents, depending on what market you're in, like the, if you're looking at like an area where, you know, when the, the times were not so good, the rent vacancies went up higher. You want to factor that in. If you're in an area and you look back and different bubbles and didn't really make a difference, you know, you'll have to account for that as well. But definitely I think, and, and it's interesting, we'll have to look back at it down the road, but you're essentially predicting January, 2024 and in real estate, what is it? Six months, nine months, like, but is, is a legger, right? And so yes. for that to happen, you, there's still a lot of other things that have to happen prior mm -hmm. to the real estate really feeling it. However, even right now, even right now, we're starting to see some properties back in February sold for some, some crazy number. And then today, 200, 300K less. And the people that bought in February, now they're like technically in negative equity. I mean, again, you don't realize it until you sell it. So if yes. you hang on to it, like you drew that little line, it'll come back up at some point. How long? I mean, could be three years, could be 10 years. <laughs> That's really the question, right? Is, is, are we going to be in a sideways market for a long time? That's also the question, right? And then also what part of the market, what tier of the market, right? So usually when we looked at like, for example, in Ontario in 2017, when they started doing the like extra like taxes, the stress test, the, the highest tier and a lot of the pre-construction fared the worst. And then mm -hmm. bottom tier, people were still like nothing, like you basically didn't feel it. And so I think it's also going to play not only the provinces, but the sub-markets in those provinces. And then where are you in the tier? Are you buying these luxury properties with no cash flow, hoping on equity? I think, unfortunately, this is not the time to do that anymore. Nope. I personally don't think it's the time to do the buying 10 condo units and hoping to sign them again. You don't know what the market's going to be when mm -hmm. it's closed and you don't know mm -hmm. who you're going to sign. Like, I, I actually worry a lot and I know some people do it and then to each their own. But to me, that is a really risky strategy in a time like this to be buying on assignment and doing the paper contracts and hoping that things go up so that you can assign. Careful with that kind of stuff. Yeah, absolutely. I, yeah, pre-construction is never, never a thing unless you're the builder yourself. And I really hope that if you're the builder yourself that you definitely have run all your numbers and taking in all the buffers in mind for sure. 
or yeah. if you're doing it and you're buying it, expect to close and 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 run your numbers so that there is cash flow <laughs> with the the renter in there, right? Yeah. So there's yes. so much pre-construction that has zero cash flow. This is the issue: it's zero cash mm -hmm. flow. People don't want to close on them, or they're gonna they're gonna close on them, and then they're expecting to sell them for a yes. profit at that point in time. Obviously, to there's these different tax pieces. Talk to your yeah. your accountant. But I worry for many people that are doing these like. Hey, I'm going to buy 10 per mm -hmm. condos. I like 800 grand each yep. I'm going to cash flow. I'm never going to close on them. They are going to be caught. I think in a really hard yeah. place. I saw that first hand actually in the Vancouver market back in 2017, because we knew people that basically in 2015, they started to basically buy a lot of pre-cons. So pre-constructions, especially condos in those markets, no different than what's happening in, in Ontario right now. And uh, they were, they were promised the goods, buy something for $750,000 right now. It's going to go up, 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 up. And uh, yeah, at one point, right before they were about to close, it it went up to as high as 950 for, for each of those units. So $200,000, it sounds really, really amazing. But then when the time came, it was when all the new taxes started kicking in and the economy took a sharp turn. I literally know a few people that had to sell their houses and declare bankruptcy because they couldn't close on that. But then they also had obligations based on their contracts that they've signed. And so, I mean, one of the things that I will say right now, though, is that as investors, we it is, like you said, Sarah, it is a very, very small circle. So what that really means is if you actually take that, take a really 30,000 feet high level view right now, is that we really probably only count, account for one to 2% if that of the real estate buyer pool in the entire country. You still got to look at what the majority of the people are doing or can or cannot do at this point. And it really doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure this out because all we got to do is go onto a mortgage calculator right now. Whether you use Canadian mortgage app on your phone, go onto Rate Hub, go onto a bank's website, just really think about this. If somebody is buying a property for $500,000, I'm not even going to use Ontario BC numbers right now. Let's just say across the board, $500,000 is your purchase price. An average person, an average person, let's say if they want to get into the market, they'll come up with the 5% as we all know, get a CMHC insurance on top of that. Really, they're taking on 98% loan to value. Regardless, just do this test for yourself and see how the numbers change. So at that purchase price, half a million dollars, 500,000, 5% down. A month and a half ago, some people were still able to get 2.1% for principal residents, even just principal residents. We're not even talking about for investors. Now they're looking at 3.1, just 1% difference. Take a look at how big that monthly payment difference is. Just take a look. For most people, they cannot afford a four to $600 jump on a monthly basis and think about what that's going to do to the general market. However, again, this is why I'm also really excited for the next few years to come because that is really where the money is made. Unfortunately, like you said, some people are not going to come out of this well. However, the people that have really learned the lessons, this is actually the time to thrive and shine. Because sideway markets are not fun. When the market's just going up, it's not that fun either. It's learning how to make money when the market's going down. That's the most fun, in my opinion. Yeah, and I think we've never, I want to say in the last three years, had the ability to really negotiate a deal and to really mm -hmm. be able to buy discounted opportunities. I think yes. this is going to be our, our opportunity where there's not 20 yes. offers on everything exactly. and losing out on, because obviously we look at the numbers, but I think this is going to be a really interesting time for people that are very, very savvy, calculated to be able to do really well. Again, this is a long-term thing. This is probably not the greatest time for flipping right now in most markets, but this is a great time to start being able to really negotiate, get stuff under contract again with due diligence opportunities rather than having to just buy something pretty much sight unseen with no conditions. Again, a little bit risky, right? So I think this is a great opportunity. If people are sitting on cash right now, this is a great, great time to really look at what's going to be happening. So Tim, you know what? It's been, it's been a pleasure having you back and we are going to go into our lightning round because you've done it recently. I'm going to just switch it up. The questions I'm just going to ask you. Okay. I come up with as we go along. You ready? Okay. Sounds right. good. Today's lightning round has been brought to you by midtermrentalproperties.ca. It is a new way to rent, make more cash flow, take back control over our investments, 
and our portfolios using a different creative strategy and pivoting. So if you want to find out more, go to midtermrentalproperties.ca. Here's question number one. What book are you currently reading right now? Oh, Cycle Cybernetics. Nice. That's a good one. I actually have it yes. on my bookshelf too. Love it. All right. Number two, give us a little glimpse of your morning routine. Oh, I love this one. Okay. So I have a liter of water right by my bedside. So that's literally the first thing that I drink once I get out of bed, open my eyes, get out of bed. And uh, we can skip the bathroom routine thing. And I make myself a hot apple cider vinegar drink. So a little bit more water, because what I want to do is to alkalize my body, get, re get it ready for the day. I actually do intermittent fasting as well. So there's no food. I've been told that that's probably the best way to do this. And then I journal for five to 10 minutes, depending on how much thoughts I want to download and what kind of goals I'm setting for myself. A lot of the times it's really a gratitude journal. And uh, the last thing that I do, well, sorry, the second last thing that I do is I will put on my headsets and uh, on my Spotify, I have this playlist called motivational speeches and I pump myself up and then I go and exercise. I love it. That's awesome. Very cool. Number three, real estate gave us lots of great things. Obviously it's also lots of stress, but what is the one thing that you're like, I never knew that I could do this, but because of real estate, I get to do it. So the honest answer is <laughs> I, every, and I'm sharing a lot of things that I've never shared before. So lighting round. Okay. I am every Christmas. I, I have this goal to give one family the best Christmas ever. I've been doing that for the last eight years now. And I don't know why, but I, I think it's because I, I came from Taiwan and I felt like I lost Chinese New Year's. So I gravitated towards Christmas a lot. And to me, it just, it's just, it's time of joy. I know some people think it's very commercialized and I believe that it is. However, I love the spirit of it. I love the feel of it. I love the fact that you get together with friends and family. And I, yeah, just made this goal. Actually, that was one of, uh, that was on my vision board when I decided to learn how to invest in real estate properly. And when I, I said, when I became financially free and have the, I have the means, that's what I wanted to do. So I've been able to long before there were these YouTube videos, people going to Toys R Us and be like, charge whatever you want on this card. I started doing that. And so I've been doing that for eight Christmases now. Amazing. That's, that's awesome. what I love. I also, I also appreciate when people don't have to brag about it and they just do it from the goodness of their heart versus like the YouTube videos that they just wanted to create a YouTube video. I think this has to come from an internal place and not be broadcasted, but thank you for sharing that. It's, that is amazing. All right. Question number four. With your portfolio right now, what is one thing that you are currently doing to mitigate, but to also be able to continue growing in the next few years? So this comes back to the real estate cycle. What I'm doing is I'm basically doing a complete refi right now, have a pot of cash sitting there. So if we do need to do a cash call, remember earlier, I did say it's cash flow management. We do have the capital ready for that. And depending on how the next three to six months go, we're still continuing to acquire. Actually, right now we're still acquiring in the U.S. I'm literally going through a couple of <laughs> offer and acquisition processes right now. Amazing. All right. Final question. Number five. Who was your mentor, not necessarily somebody that personally, but somebody that others can also maybe listen to, watch, have access to? I literally had like a thousand names <laughs> flash before my <laughs> eyes right now. Oh, okay. The, ooh, lightning round, lightning round. Okay. I'm gonna, I'm, I'm gonna say, I'm still gonna say Warren Buffett. Awesome. Love it. So yeah. Very cool. All right. That was the lightning round. Thank you, Tim, okay. for playing. And thank you for playing my like very sporadic questions that literally I just come up with as finish <laughs> talking. I'm like, all right, what's the next Good question? <laughs> but I thought they were, they were great answers. Thank you so much. Very authentic. Tim, where can my listeners reach out? Find out. They can find me on Facebook or on my Instagram. It's just at the Tim Tsai. So T-H-E and my full name. Amazing. And you also offer some coaching and many other things. So feel free to reach out to Tim for all of that good stuff. Thanks very Thank much Tim, for being on the show. Thank you again. Hey guys, before you go, I wanted to ask you a question. What's stopping you from starting or growing your own real estate investment portfolio? 
I know for me, before I started, I had plenty of reasons, and at the time, they all seemed very valid, but as I started my journey, these reasons slowly fell away, and eventually, only one reason remained. What was actually stopping me was having a proven, actionable, repeatable system. I didn't have that. And the way that was going to change was by investing in myself, learning, listening, and looking for ways that worked, and also, most importantly, discovering what didn't and not making those mistakes again. Fast forward to today, I now have a proven, repeatable series of action steps that has enabled me to build my seven-figure portfolio consisting of multiple homes, and I'm able to manage that in two to three hours a month. Is that something that you would want? Well, I've actually taken all the knowledge I've accumulated and put that into a comprehensive step-by-step online program. It's called Rise, and it's a program that will help you from where you are now to where you want to be faster and with less of the headaches that I had. So it consists of all the templates and the resources that I use, plus over 40 instructional videos that you get lifetime access to for just a small one-time investment. And, you know, my recommendation is to make the time now to invest in yourself and grow your portfolio to seven figures so that you can bring your retirement dreams closer. If you want some more information about Rise, just go to sarahlarby.com forward slash R-I-S-E to access more details and book your spot. Thanks so much for listening to Where Should I Invest with your host, Sarah Larby. Make sure to listen in next time. We'll catch you on the next episode of Where Should I Invest.